Secret Movie Clubbers, and welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 67. We got over the accursed Podcast 66, because numbers do. I am superstitious about numbers. It is a totally nonsensical superstition, and I suffer from it. So there you go. I'm glad we're on 67. Today... We are going to be talking about movies that the filmmakers either rejected or distanced themselves from or felt were disasters. But we want to take the nuanced view that sometimes these movies did absolutely hinder or destroy the careers of the people that were part of them. But also sometimes these were, when you look back on it, the necessary film to launch an entire career as we would come to know that filmmaker. Some of the greatest examples of that might be like Coppola on Finian's Rainbow, Stanley Kubrick after Spartacus. And what we're going to anchor this conversation on specifically is David Lynch, who did 1984's Dune. And this is interestingly timed because pretty soon we're going to see Dennis Villeneuve's Dune. And David Lynch himself was taking over from Alejandro Jodorowsky, who was going to do Dune. But David Lynch has said repeatedly that Dune was the worst experience of his life, that he felt like he died on it, that it was death, that after that he would never, ever, ever again make a movie without Final Cut, and that he made so many compromises on that movie. And we'll talk about it a little later, but we're going to anchor off that. We have a special guest, the returning champion, I think, of most uh, returning appearances. Give it up for musician, for producer, for writer, for cinephile, for New Englander, for Canadian, for former Catholic, for amazing <laughs> friend, Bri Robert. Give it up. Hey, buddies. How you guys doing? to see you as always i just like yeah each time you just keep adding to it and it's fantastic and i just i'm, I'm expecting like studio president in the next one i think and who else is with us hi it's me kyle Ray cruz the people's quizats haterac it's the real david lynch fans in the house today the that is true we are all obsessed with twin peaks you're wearing your twin peaks shirt for the audience at home if they don't notice in the photo absolutely and i'm craig the founder programmer of secret movie club it is wonderful to have everybody we're gonna get to this topic asap uh just at the head announcements so by the time you hear this secret movie clubbers probably the biggest news will be this friday at 1 p.m when you're going to download this episode and begin listening to it that's uh, july 30th 2021 we are going to begin to announce our august september schedule i am positive it's going to be a rolling announcement of at least a week but the goal is to announce almost the entirety of our entire august and our entire september i do want to go back to the three month scheduling that we had for a whole bunch of reasons we're going to take a baby step there by announcing two months so this friday just go to our eventbrite go to secretmovieclub.com go to our facebook you'll see all the events that we've announced more than likely probably just the first two or three weeks and then uh, we'll announce everything else after that this weekend though we wrap up july Friday night, join us. We're doing a 35mm screening of Akira Kurosawa's Dedeskaden, his first movie in color. It's a beautiful movie. I, I've taken to shorthanding by saying it's heartbreaking and heartwarming, which is true. It's actually one of his sweetest films, but conversely also, there's just a, a specifically one storyline I don't want to get into that's unbearable, unbearably painful. And for that reason, it was not a hit at the box office. And Kurosawa himself actually uh, half-heartedly tried to commit suicide after this movie because it was not received well. And now people look back on it and they're like, this is better than 99.9% of everything ever made. Just to show you what a consummate filmmaker Kurosawa was. And then he went on to make six more movies. So he, he snapped out of it. He felt really bad that he had allowed depression to get to him. And he, he went back to making movies. We're doing that on Friday, the desk and 35 millimeter on Saturday at the million dollar theater, La Dolce Vita, Fellini's La Dolce Vita on 35. And then that night at the secret movie club theater, we're doing another Fellini, Eva Deloney, Eva Deloney being one of my favorite Fellinis. It's also the Fellini that inspired both me 
Mean Streets and American Graffiti. And Dazed and Confused. Interestingly. So if you're like, how is that possible? You'll get it right away. It's about a group of people in their late teens, early 20s, hanging out for a year. And as always, you can write us a community at secretmovieclub.com and check out everything we do on secretmovieclub.com. And the most important announcement is happy birthday, Craig. Oh, thank you. This episode will come out the day after your birthday. Thank you. That's right. July 29th, 1977. I was born in the Granada Hills Hospital, which is no more in the San Fernando Valley. My father worked for the city at the time as a legislative analyst. My grandparents lived less than a mile away. In fact, both sets of my grandparents lived less than a mile away from the hospital. All my aunts and uncles and cousins lived in the city. And I thought that's how everybody lived. I thought everybody lived with their entire family within five miles of them. And then when my family started to move away when I was 12, 13 and do what most families do, which is summer in Michigan and summer in Idaho and summer up north and some Summer in Riverside and summer in San Clemente, then I realized, oh, this is what most families are like. But I really had, I look at it as a real blessed childhood. The reason I love big crowds is literally any Friday at my grandparents' house, 40 people. No joke. It was just a regular Friday. 40 people would just be all my aunts and uncles, whatever cousins were there, friends that came in from the neighborhood that the aunts and uncles brought because a lot of them weren't married at the time. My grandparents, my great grandparents, my dad's family. And I just thought that's how everybody rolled. 40 people in the house at all times. But thank you, Connor, very much. I am 44 and I'm going to embrace it. I'm embracing it all. When I go bald, I go bald. When I go gray, I go gray. I hope I embrace it. You heard me here. It's on record now. You have to actually. We are talking today about movies that really crushed filmmakers or they took their names off of them or they distanced themselves from them or they were failed projects. They got pulled from them. Very famously, Martin Scorsese shot a day or two on a movie called The Honeymoon Killers, which you can get on Criterion, I think. And he was trying to make sure he could impose his vision on the movie by shooting everything in masters with no coverage. And the second day, the or third day, the producers were like, no. And they pulled Scorsese off that it's a little known story even he had horrible experiences you know and then he was Scorsese today we're gonna talk let's start by talking about David Lynch's Dune David Lynch who had gone to AFI and had made a racer head took him four years to make a racer head came out with a racer head in 1977 blew everybody's minds no one had seen anything like it it's still one of my favorite David Lynch movies and it was you know this midnight movie hit from that Mel Brooks of all people hired him to direct the elephant man and David Lynch actually said you would think that would have been the bad experience because you had this seasoned filmmaker, you know, Mel Brooks producing, hiring this kid who had just made this crazy midnight movie. But David Lynch said Mel Brooks like gave him tons of latitude and he had a wonderful experience on it. And he got to make the movie exactly the way he wanted to make it. And Elephant Man was this huge hit, you know, mostly critically, I think, but I still think it made a lot of money back. We've got all these Academy Award nominations. I think Lynch got a director nomination out of it. I mean, and he was still really young. And so he's kind of had a one two punch, which a lot of young filmmakers have, and he gets to do a third. Now, you guys probably know this. George Lucas calls him to direct what was then called Revenge of the Jedi. And David Lynch didn't want to do it. And you should just listen to David Lynch tell the story on YouTube. I'll tell it really quickly. But his agent was like, you got to do this. You got to at least take the meeting. So David Lynch goes up to Marin County and George Lucas starts showing him Wookiee costumes and talking about space monkeys. And David Lynch said, and then I, I, I got a headache. And the more he, he was talking about the space monkey, I was like, I, I can't do this. I won't do this. I don't know what this is about. I just needed to get back to L.A. right away. Because what David Lynch got very intelligently 
was he was like, I'm not the director of this. And David Lynch said, he told George Lucas, I'm honored, but you know, you don't need a director. You need someone like an AD who's just going to do what you want. And that's not me. You know, thank you so much for the opportunity, but I, I really do want to have a say. So then Dino De Laurentiis reaches out to David Lynch and offers him Dune. David Lynch thought, oh, blockbuster, sci-fi, but Dino's going to give me the latitude to do it my way. They shoot the movie. David Lynch writes the script. He writes the script to be three hours and 15 minutes. The studio approves it. They love the footage. They turn in the three hour and 15 minute cut. Now, David Lynch said even at three hours and 15 minutes, I think he had real issues with the movie. He, he realized he, he was compromising from the beginning, but the studio sees it and they basically convince Dino De Laurentiis that the movie needs to be two hours and 15 minutes to make money. De Laurentiis says this is one of his biggest regrets in his life. He forces Lynch to recut the movie, take out an hour. They have to reshoot new scenes. They add a voiceover with Virginia Madsen as the princess of the emperor. All this stuff, they just totally butcher the last hour of the movie. It goes out and David Lynch just said it was the worst experience of his life. At the end of that film, he was like, never again. This is not the kind of movie I should have been making. I made a mistake even accepting it. But the one thing I'm never, ever again going to do is make a movie without Final Cut. And this is this is an experience a lot of directors have. They take on a really big budget movie and they're really young and they think they're going to be given this big sandbox and they're not. They're actually kind of hired for their name and the producers want to tightly control them. You have to take the positives first. And, and of this one, you know, we're, we're all Lynch fans here. And the set, the costume design and a lot of the production set designs are amazing and fantastic. It's mostly limitations that I think hurt this movie the most because I know that Lynch initially wanted to make it into two films. All the cast thought they were being signed on for three films. This was supposed to be Star Wars for adults. And I think there was just this expectation of this grandiose thing that just didn't happen. And it all failed in editing, I think, because I think they it was like something from March to November of that year that it took to cut the film. And it was just one of those that that I think that was the most problems of it happened in post-production. The first half of this movie has like an over-exposition problem, which is weird for Lynch because that's not usually the problem. And I really do feel like if you took out a lot of that VO in the first half of this movie, it would actually make it a lot better. And a lot of the dialogue, if you cut a lot of it. I guess when it was first in the theater, they handed people like a sheet of terminology for the film. Yeah, that's like such a weird choice though. Maybe it's a situation where back then producers didn't really understand how like the fantasy stuff works, where you have to foreground character you know we're star wars you're using terms like lightsaber x-wing and then all of a sudden you have these terms that are just not even somewhat relatable but star wars didn't have like a book to that because you could assume by watching it and so it's that's one of those things i assume lynch's original cut did not have so much exposition so much clumsy exposition like the first half has and i think that would just work so much better because i think you do get a lot of it visually and i do think that so much of the story of it is a character-based story about Paul Atreides. It's actually interesting to note that in the book, the first scene is the test, the Gamjabar test from the Bene Gesserit woman who comes to his planet. Such a better opening scene. I think this opens with like three different scenes of exposition. Because I think we're wandering too in the whole sense of like who he is as a character. It somehow just goes from this real, he doesn't know anything. He's so innocent. He's so just gullible almost to everything. And then it's just so quickly the pacing, he becomes this warrior out of nowhere that I think if that it started out, like you said, with the test at the very beginning, it was too much of this setup and the exposition of he's supposed to be this guy, but who is he? And then by the time he becomes this guy, you're so deep in the film that it's like, oh, now he's the hero and I wish I'd 
kind of realized this a little earlier of what we were supposed to do with those. Well, yeah, and you can tell the second half of the film is kind of the opposite problem of the first half, where it feels like they had so much more in that second half than what ended up actually going into it. Because it's like the second that Kyle jumps up on the sandworm and rides that thing to, you know, the, that heroic moment. The film changes to me at that point. It just becomes a different, it's just everything thrown at action at once and then film over. I think the movie really falls apart in the second half or the last third for the reasons you're saying, which is that suddenly you just get this feeling that all they're, they're doing is riding worms. And you're like, I think something's happening here. I, I guess what I'm supposed to get out of it is that they're training, they're getting ready to like attack the Harkonnens and what have you. And But it just seems like they're just mounting and riding worms and, and smiling at each other. I feel bad for Sean Young in the movie too, because I feel like her part in the three and a half hour cut was probably there was a love story there and the two and a half hour cut she's like there to look beautiful and make out with Kyle McLaughlin I I only become more and more in love and obsessed and think David Lynch is one of the greatest movie makers that ever lived I would say though and I don't know if he would say this I think action filmmaking is a specific talent a specific discipline and I think when you watch the movie whether Lynch didn't have the budget or whatever, it's just like shots of people like flying, and exploding and stuff towards the end. And it's just like, ah, lasers. Ah, ah. And I really think a lot of that was actually Lynch's decision and choice, because even technology wise, he was using things that we had further technology even back then for. But he basically went out there and I think the production designer said he wanted to do anything that was not Star Wars or any other movie ever made. That was what he was looking at and going for his imagery and, and trying to get the visual aspect of that. And you can see, obviously, that technology isn't even where it should have been in, in films coming out in 83, 84. I did actually weirdly think that the scene towards the beginning when Kyle MacLachlan fights the little, like, training robot, I thought that scene was actually shot kind of well for, like, an action scene for Lynch. And I enjoyed a lot of those transitional space floaty things because that felt very Lynch to me. Like, you could feel a lot of that Eraserhead influence. I think what really pushed him on even doing this project altogether was Alejandro Jodorowsky. You know, he was a fan of his work, and obviously the amount of, for those who don't know, he, he's an avant-garde filmmaker who's made The Holy Mountain. and El Topo, Santa Sangre. He made wild stuff, and he had some. He had a really, really great vision for what he wanted to do at the time, but, uh, it, you know, even back then, studio was like, you know, we, we can get let you make a two-hour film, and he's like, no, I need a 10- to 12-hour film to do this. I mean, he had interesting, uh, crazy ideas. I mean, he wanted to have Pink Floyd score the thing, Orson Welles play the Baron, even Salvador Dali had a character he wanted to do, which is actually a funny story because Salvador Dali wanted said he would do it for a thousand dollars an hour, and Jodorowsky agreed to it, but wrote his character for one hour. And then even the effects team that was going to be on it, they went on to go do Ridley Scott's Alien. So I think visual, he really dug the storyboards that he saw. He dug the idea, and I think that's what Lynch, because Lynch was a fan of Jodorowsky as well. There are things in the story of Dune though that also align, I think, with some of Lynch's interests, especially with like a lot of the dreams and sort of visions. The dreamer awakens. Interestingly, you know, for the Lynchophiles out there, Twin Peaks: The Return, I always read as also being his summation movie. Because there is an element from every film he's made in there. This is Dark Tower. Because if you've seen Eraserhead, there's an atomic bomb photo over Henry's bed. That's behind Lynch in The Return. He references Wild at Heart, he, you know, through Laura Dern and Blue Velvet and Kyle MacLachlan. He even switches up his style. And I realized he references Dune in two key moments. You know, maybe he'd tell me I'm wrong, and but... 
One is the obvious, like there's the, does the dreamer realize that when does the dreamer stop dreaming the dream, which is like the dreamer awakens. But the castle in episode eight, look at the, the way that he approaches the castle in episode eight and look at the way that the castle is framed on Arrakis. Or not on Arrakis, what's Atreides' planet called? Caladan. And Caladan is on the ocean, is that right? And the, in episode eight, the castle's on the ocean. And if you look at it, even the shot and the way the castle is built and the framing is identical. And Lynch himself has said, this is why I think he's just such a cool dude. He's like, it's not that I hate everything about Dune. He said, I really like some of the design things we did. He said he worked with the production designer to give it kind of a Venetian carnival medieval feel. And he felt some of that stuff got in there and he liked that. It brought him to Kyle McLaughlin. Yeah, and that's the that's the biggest thing I will that we all take from this is the relationship was formed because this was Kyle McLaughlin's first role. Ed is in it. Everett McGill. Jack Nance. I think Dune is interesting to me, too, because I don't think it's a complete disaster. Yeah, the last hour is rough and silly. But I do find some of the worm things fascinating, the worm imagery and, yeah, the dream imagery. Like, and honestly, Tim Burton got very, very influenced. I mean, that's what I think about. Again, this movie was set design and costume like Tim Burton, as far as his costume stuff, he pulled the ideas for Batman for his, his Batman movie from the costume design from Dune and even the sandworm. He loved the way the sandworms were used, that they use the same style and the same effect for it for Beetlejuice. Tim Burton loved it. And, and I think that's, again, the biggest takeaway from this film is that production design and costume design because it was really was ahead of what it was doing. And I think even with the new Dune coming out, I mean, Denise said that he took influence from that costume design and wanted to go the same direction. Fat Boy Slim was obviously influenced by it. If you walk without rhythm, then you want to track the worm. <laughs> <laughs> have both of you read the novel? I have not. not. My Dune knowledge is absorbed from a podcast called LPN Deep Dives Dune. That's like a 12-episode podcast that just goes into like the six books that Frank Herbert wrote. I remember as a kid, my dad really dug Dune, and my dad wanted me to watch it. The movie, David Lynch's Dune. I remember as a kid, there was imagery in it that was very unsettling to me, like the Harkonnens and the fact that they have boils and they pus and stuff. So off-putting. That whole sequence with the, with the <laughs> needle to the face. But it's very Lynch in a lot of ways. There's so much moisture in all of those sequences, too. And then also picking up a kind of homoerotic subtext between the Harkonnens and, like, Sting. Oh, oh, what? When he comes out, and he just looks like he got out of one of his tantric sex motions right there in that sequence. The Baron is like, mm, my <laughs> Before he floats around the room. So there's all this weird, specifically with the Baron, and the Harkonnens and then the dreams and that great imagery of like the water dropping and the moon and the like that all could be in any Lynch movie. I mean, if you showed me that stuff and you said what director directed this, I'd say it could be David Lynch. I think that kind of looks Lynchy to me. I mean, it taught him that valuable lesson that he's shared with every filmmaker. I think ever that he speaks to is always have final cut. It was a learning lesson for him. He it was the only film he ever did an adaptation for. It was just so many lessons learned everything from like the production what it's like to have the studios get involved so deeply. One of the funniest things that I've found from this one is the amount of people they had on the set between the actual actors, the crew, and the extras. They actually shared the set because De Laurentiis was, he, he was making another production at the time and I guess was always trying to save money whenever he could. And at that exact same moment where they're doing Dune, they had to actually share a set with Conan the Destroyer. So they shared location and crew with Conan the Destroyer at the time with Arnold Schwarzenegger's film. But I think it was just that lesson that Lynch learned on what to deal with, you know, because I think the production every single day there was something on set that was going, whether it was rain or even the, the ideas with the blue contacts in the eyes, things going wrong with the crew and the cast getting infections and the locations and things being so bad with the conditions that I think he took that along with all of the, the post-production mishaps and miscues and led that forward, I think. I'm just excited for his upcoming Netflix series where he's adapting Dune Messiah. Kyle McLaughlin's coming back. 
Whoa. <laughs> playing an older Paul Atreides. There is a 15, I mean, obviously it's been more than 15 years, but there's like a significant time jump between those books. So maybe that is what he's doing for Netflix. Who knows? Laura Dern is replacing Sean Young. <laughs> Oh, wow. I mean, honestly, you're talking about a world that I would give every penny to watch. So I will wrap out our Dune part of the conversation with this thesis that I have. And I don't think it's applicable to every filmmaker who has a bad experience, because I think, unfortunately, if you really want to be honest and empirical, I think more people get chewed up by the system than get forged like a sword in fire and come out like ready to go on the hero's quest of self-expression. I think one of the things I've noticed my whole adult life is that one of the things I feel is unfortunate, and I'm not judging, is that many talented young filmmakers take on a big franchise and then never mature as a filmmaker ever again. They stay on the franchise. I'm sure it's hard to say no to the money. You eventually get comfortable, and you're like, well, I get to do basically what I want. And every year or every two or three years, I get paid 10 million bucks. You know, this is a pretty good lifestyle. Most people don't have it. And, you know, I get it. And look, there but for the grace of God go I. I mean, I've been poor my whole life. I've, you know, always struggled for money. And if I had the opportunity to steadily work, are you kidding me? And like support my family and be able to travel and not worry about my retirement? I don't judge at all. Nevertheless, David Lynch made a really interesting decision here. And Stanley Kubrick, too. They said, never again. I got in this game because cinema was a tool of expression. I didn't get into this game to pick up a paycheck and just do whatever, because that's just not how I can live with myself. If my name's on it, my name's on it. So David Lynch, weirdly, he and Dino De Laurentiis, you would think, <laughs> they would have a huge falling out. They didn't. Dino had signed David to a two or three picture deal. Lynch goes and he writes Blue Velvet and he goes back to De Laurentiis and De Laurentiis is shooting Maximum Overdrive in North Carolina or whatever, to your point. And it's almost the inverse of Dune. De Laurentiis says, great, I'll finance this. Go make it. You have final cut. Make it the way you want. We're doing Maximum Overdrive in South Carolina or North Carolina. Let's just share the crews and the money there. I can finance it that way. So Lynch goes. He makes Blue Velvet with Kyle MacLachlan, Laura Dern, Dennis Hopper. Obviously, then it returns to his trend of mind-blowing movies and it has Final Cut, does Twin Peaks after that. What's interesting is that out of Dune came Blue Velvet. Which I think is his best film. I think many people agree with that. And so weirdly, you would not have had Blue Velvet if you had not have had Dune. And this is something in the world and in existence in life I think is fascinating. And so much so that when Dino De Laurentiis died, David Lynch gave a eulogy. He was one of only a few people that spoke. Dino De Laurentiis wanted Lynch to speak. Schwarzenegger spoke, interestingly. But there's David Lynch saying, I love Dino. I owe everything to Dino. So I think that there's a lesson to me in Dune that you may have a horrible experience, but it may actually be the fire you need to get through to actually be a good filmmaker. And I don't know that you do anything good without some pain and struggle and growth. That's kind of the plot of the fourth Dune book, to be fair. I'm not going to explain that. I do believe that great art comes out of struggle. I do believe that. I don't think it always has to, but I, I do believe that you, you are often uncomfortable. You have to push yourself. You can't accept mediocre stuff. I think someone once said to move from the mediocre to the good is Herculean. To move from the good to the great is almost Sisyphusian. And I think you do need to suffer a lot and grow and learn. If you want to be the best of the best, that doesn't happen because you sit at the keyboard 10 minutes a day and whatever. Kubrick as well did Spartacus. 
Now, this to me is a more hilarious example because Kubrick did never like to talk about Spartacus being his movie. He rarely talked about it. He kind of distanced himself. It is an amazing movie, <laughs> like no qualifications. It's literally one of the greatest Roman epics ever made. And it's very Kubrickian. And it's funny, but it was the same thing. He didn't have Final Cut. He couldn't change the script. Kirk Douglas terrorized him as a producer. And Kubrick just like, I'm moving to England and I'm never doing that again. But I think that Spartacus gave Kubrick the tools to make really big movies for the rest of his life because he had made a big movie and he had made a great movie. And I think Spartacus was probably a necessary experience. It is Stanley Kubrick's birthday today, so we have to celebrate that. But Fear and Desire, obviously, is another one that he always shunned and hated. And that's an interesting one because it was his first film and it comes from that point of view where he clearly was like, I was an amateur filmmaker. That is nothing more than amateur filmmaker work. Despite the fact that there are a lot of good things, like just the photography sense from the composition and things that he had going on in that film. It's pretty boring, though. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, there's no denying. It is definitely a first filmmaker's film. It's a long 70 minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. David Fincher in Alien 3 is always one that I love knowing. Understandably, he had 30 minutes cut from the film. The studio changed his ending. And he just went on to absolutely disown and hate that film so much. That's like an interesting example because that's one where I don't necessarily know if studio interference messed that movie up as much as I think that movie might have been kind of boring and a little bad regardless. <laughs> or like when Joel Schumacher, rest in peace, talks about, you know, like disowning Batman and Robin. And it's like, buddy, like this movie is kind of exactly <laughs> like, I don't know how you're on set for Batman and Robin. And you're like, at the at the end, when you see the final product, you're like, man, I can't believe it turned out this way. <laughs> I think you kind of know. And Alien 3 isn't that exactly, but it's definitely one where I've seen the like the better cut of it or whatever that is on like Blu-ray. And I still think it's one of the weakest Alien movies. The other one that's kind of fascinating, but it was more, I think, the filmmaker just butted heads with everybody involved, was uh, American History X and Tony Kay. Notorious that he fought with New Line left and right, to the point where they literally locked him out of the editing bay. And then Ed Norton came in and ended up cutting the film. And I think Tony Kay just went on to just disown and put throw his name completely off of it. And that's an interesting example because I've seen American History X. It's a good movie. It's not a great movie, but it's a pretty interesting film. It's like the type of movie I'm not, I think, is into the sort of like a little too heavy handed. But for what it is, I remember it being like totally solid. I want to talk about the man, Alan Smithy, who is not a man, but a concept. If people... You want to look this up, go to the Alan Smithy Wikipedia page. It has like examples of every time it was used. But Alan Smithy is an official pseudonym used by film directors who wish to disown a project. In fact, there is a recut version of Dune that is directed by Alan Smithy. Oh, and do you know that who gets screenwriting credit on that recut thing? A man named Judas Booth, who also doesn't exist... But Lynch was so furious, David Lynch took his name off the screenplay and, and combined <laughs> Judas and John Wilkes Booth, which I think is really telling about David Lynch's Americana and his Christianity, which he doesn't like to speak about openly, but he speaks about opaquely. Deeply spiritual guy, also deeply Americana guy, and I like that his name was Judas Booth. That's a good fake name. It's interesting. I'm noticing that there's certain movies like Heat, as edited for television, was credited to Alan Smithy. So that must have been some like weird moral stance. Not weird, but like... I'm not trying to judge. Well, I think a censorship and comes into play and the filmmakers are sort of like, no, I'm not going to be a part of that because I don't want to be censored. And, and, you know, the TV standards comes into play in that. There's like a bunch for like television episodes that people just don't 
know who directed them. It's lost to history. I think David O. Russell was part of that. He was one of the guys. Oh, yeah, with Screwed, right? Or what was that called? Nailed. With Jake Gyllenhaal and Jessica Biel, I think. It's that one that sat for years. We're probably going to talk about it later this year, but it's interesting that George Lucas wants to destroy every copy of the Star Wars Holiday Special, which he presumably had to sign off on at some point. Good luck, George. Internet will keep that alive forever. I and mean, that's, that's what Kubrick did with Fear and Desire. He was like, I want every copy done. I, I don't want this shown anywhere. And then I also have always liked uh, Bill Murray's attitude towards Garfield. <laughs> he got the script and it said... Written uh, by um, Ethan Cohen. It was like Joel Cohen, but it's spelled with an H. And, <laughs> he thought he was making a Cohen Brothers film. And then, you know, he famously went on probably the funniest joke in uh, the movie Zombieland, if people haven't seen it. Bill Murray plays himself... He's dressed up like a zombie, but he isn't a zombie, and he gets shot. And as he's as he's sitting there dying, they ask him if he has any regrets, and he says, "Probably Garfield." <laughs> There's a movie called directed by Alan Smithy, and I think it was directed by Arthur Hiller, who had done The Hospital and Love Story and some pretty famous '60s and '70s movies. And he ended up taking his name off of it. It's called like Burn Hollywood Burn. Arthur Hiller took his name off it, and it's directed by Alan Smithy. And it was meant to be a satire parody about movies directed by Alan Smithy. So. There's a famous story that Kurosawa was hired to direct the Japanese portion of a movie called Tora, 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 which did get made. It was like a, you know, Pearl Harbor epic of the early 70s. And Kurosawa was going to direct all of the Japanese side of it. He had all these ideas, one of them being that he wanted a lot of non-actors. And it's rumored that one of the reasons that he and Mifuni never worked again, they were going to have a rapprochement. And Mifuni, who was very active in the actors union, was very frustrated that Kurosawa wasn't giving work to Japanese actors and what would have been like one of the biggest sort of forums for Japanese actors to reach out to a, a larger audience. Kurosawa was signed on. He was going to do it. And he realized almost immediately he was just like, they're not going to let me do what I do. And what's the point? And it took him, I think, four years after that, five years after that, before he made Dursu Uzala. And actually, after that point, it was always hard for him to make movies until his last three films. It was always four years between movies, which still for the rest of us would be great. But I think for a Kurosawa who had been making a movie a year, four years is an eternity. And it, but it's just interesting. I, and I think the lesson I always take out of there is I've always wondered could I make a movie in a different country, in a different language, in a different system? And some people do it, you know, do it. Billy Wilder, Wolfgang Peterson, William Wyler, Fritz Lang, Paul Verhoeven. Just talking about Jodorowsky earlier, that was his whole reason for going to New York. And he he felt like the only way I'm going to get my attention out there is if I just do the craziest stuff that's just out of its mind. And he went to New York to did it because everybody in Mexico was like, you're not going to. I think Mexico is where he tried to really, even though it's a Chilean filmmaker, I think Mexico is where he tried to really make his initial films. And they all were like, nobody's going to make it. Nobody makes it in the United States. You're not going to do it. And he's like, I'm going to I'm just going to make weird and do it. I actually would love to make a few films in Spanish. I have some ideas that the stories are Spanish language stories. But I always just wonder, I'm not a native Spanish speaker. I don't know that anyone would fund it. I don't know that it would be right for me to direct it, not being a Latin American. That Kurosawa story to me is that even someone of his level, this is what I'm getting at, even someone of his level will have a disastrous project or a project he walks away from. Bergman notoriously made two English language movies that he was like, I shouldn't have done that. So they're, they're just interesting that no matter what level you're at, I think if you're going to be a director, you have to also gird yourself that you're going to have some experiences. You're like, this is a disaster <laughs> and I'm walking away and someone else needs to do it. And that's painful. That's painful to know that you're signing up. I mean, that's pain, but it's interesting. 
Pop culture final thoughts, Bri. If you haven't seen it yet, go see Nicolas Cage and Pig. It's amazing. It's not a typical Nick Cage film that's come out in the last recent years. It's actually a really profound, moving experience. It's not a long runtime, but well worth your time. I'm so excited for Pig. As I get older, I still feel, and I'm excited, I'm glad for this, I still feel excitement. But the number of movies I feel excitement for is fewer now than when I was in my 20s. And I, ha- I hate that because I kind of would love to just be excited by everything. It's something about being interesting, though. You know, I think we've just seen so much, consumed so much over the years that now it takes a little bit more to be interesting. Like, I watch everything like we all do, but there's certain movies, you know, and some of the big name commercial ones that we've seen big universes form. I'm sometimes not as excited. And then you'll start to see things like, you know, what just happened in Cannes with Titan coming out. There's so many interesting things that are still out there. And I think it's just a matter of seeking those out. Green Knight comes out this week. That's exciting to me. So I think it's just a matter of what you're seeking for right now. Martin Scorsese has said that as he gets older and he kind of hated it, too, but he had to accept it, that he'll stop watching a movie five minutes in because he's already seen 20 like it. And he's literally said, I know I'm going to die soon. (laughs) And he's like, I just don't have the time to watch a two hour movie where five minutes into it, I know exactly what it's going to be because I've seen 3000 movies or 4000 movies. So and I was like. Man, that's very bluntly honest, but I sort of get it. But Pig, though, this is all a point of saying that the moment I heard about Pig, I like I got to see it right away. I can't wait to see it. And I love all kinds of Nick Cage films. I love his crazy revenge films. You know, I love when he goes out, out of control. But this is a very contained, just profound is, is the best word I can use for this one. And it's interesting because the, you talk about that being the age we're at. That's sort of what this is. Uh, it's a very reflective film. And I don't know, maybe where I'm at in my life as well, it, it resonated a little bit more to me. Speaking of new movies, me and Brian also yesterday saw Old by M. Night Shyamalan. We did. We definitely did. <laughs> we were mentioning a second ago about people getting to like make the stuff I want. I think it's interesting to note that the last handful of M. Night's movies, he's financed totally himself. A lot of respect for that. He's just making the movies he wants to make. I'm a big M. Night defender. I specifically just think he seems like kind of an adorable man. Every time, whenever he pops up in his in his own movies, I get a similar emotion to when I see Stan Lee pop up in the Marvel movies. Where I'm like, <laughs> oh, that guy. But I even said when I got home yesterday to a friend, he's the most frustrating filmmaker in a lot of ways because he has so many great ideas until he doesn't. I just get annoyed and frustrated by it because there are so, so much potential. I think I liked Old more than you, though. You definitely did, yeah. I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. I don't think it's like one of his best movies, but it rings about as much as you could out of that concept, maybe more than you should, because there's certain scenes towards the end where it does get into some of the more almost like emotional, metaphorical ideas of the idea of like aging rapidly and relationships and families and, you know, what happens when you get older. That is actually kind of really interesting, but then a lot of it's kind of more of like a survival story about what happens when a bunch of people on the beach start realizing they're aging rapidly and can't leave the beach and don't trust each other and that sort of thing. But it's it's a solid little uh, thriller. I, 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 I thought so. It also has Alex Wolf from Pig. It, it, reading your face, Bri, is it just another thing where the premise is dynamite, but then the explanation is ridiculous? Yes, and I still feel like he's, and I don't know if it's, uh, clearly the years of pressure for that he's gotten to make that drop, that twist, that big ending, it's clearly affected him because he still has this way, and it's definitely not as on the nose trying to do it as some of the, his previous films, but it's still, I felt like it was there and it just kind of is like, you don't need to have that big moment. Just like, I don't know, I wanted a little bit more expanse of what this could be. And I felt like it was just a little bit like, 
Oh, here you go, guys. This is the world. Haha, ha, the big reveal. The curtain's out. And I don't appreciate that all the time because I just feel like it's just a broken record with him at this point. I always think with M. Night Shyamalan of this thing that Hitchcock said when he was talking to Truffaut, where he for years wanted to make this movie. And the opening is these sailors are out at sea and out of the mist comes this huge ship and no one's on it. And the sailors just watch it float by. And so they board the ship and cigarettes are still lit. Beds are still warm. Imprints of bodies are there. No one is there. Food is still on the plate. What has happened on this ship? Where is everybody? And Hitchcock said the problem was that opening was so great, nothing he did for the rest of the movie matched the opening, even the explanation. And he said that you cannot have a first act that plays like a third act. And he said, if the premise is too fascinating, you're just not going to scratch the itch that you've started because the human brain wants the answer. Whereas I think bringing it back to David Lynch, what's so great about David Lynch is I think David Lynch's third acts are brilliant, but they're often discovered. He doesn't like say in the first act, here's the whole reason the hook of the movie. You know, here's the whole hook of Twin Peaks. It's this discovered thing that he mines and he mines and he mines. And then at the end, you're just you're this is the most amazing metaphor for dysfunctional families and child abuse I've ever seen in the dual nature of human beings. But Lynch himself has said that was discovered. He just was open to discovering that in the material. And I think you, you've got to be very careful when you have this premise, unless you can top the premise in the third act. It's going to be tough. And I'm one of those like you. I, I like to have my, you know. I want to have that imagination at the end. I don't want all that on the nose. Here's everything on a, on a paper outline for me of what happened. Give me that thought. There's nothing better than, than the next day after seeing a film and going, what did I experience? Let me start thinking about this. And you can't get it out of your head. Whereas, unfortunately, a film like Old, I'm sort of just like, this is going to be gone by Tuesday. <laughs> or I want to have that sort of Mulholland Drive experience where you're just like contemplating everything that happened in that third act because it isn't just pointed out to you and just given to you. But everybody's different, obviously, and, I, and that's the wonderful thing about film is we all have what gets us. I'll watch anything because I'm open to anything, and that's why I'm not gonna, I don't want to diss and rip apart M. Night because, again, I respect what he's doing, funding. I mean, he's going for it. He easily could have been a guy who's like, I don't want to deal with this pressure. I'm out. He still always goes for it and swings for the fences, and I'll always respect that no matter what. Absolutely, and he is a talented filmmaker and has made – a number of movies. I mean, my favorite being personally Unbreakable. Yeah, Unbreakable is like a masterpiece, I think. I would say Unbreakable and Split. His best movies, I think the twists are more like character-based. You know, Split, the sort of turn at the end of that is very character-centric. Unbreakable, it's very character-centric. Sixth Sense, it's very character-centric. As opposed to like The Village, which is like a much more broader society thing the happening that's a really good point because even old the same feeling i had about this is why i sort of my feelings i have about those i agree though i actually do i kind of like the tone like the way the turn worked in this one just because i thought they set it up well that you knew there was going to be something like that as opposed to something like the village where like that just comes out of nowhere in old <laughs> you know that like something is rotten at this place and that there's some sort of organization behind going on you know that within like the first 15 minutes and so the the end is just the reveal of exactly what it was and old i thought got to genuinely there's the scene with the two leads more or less vicky creeps and gael garcia bernal they're basically like the parents at the center of it them and their kids and they're obviously becoming like elderly and it's night and towards the beginning of the movie this is like the last vacation they're having before they're telling their kids that they're separating and at the end of the movie they're much older it's kind of a spoiler <laughs> they're much older and they're sort of just reminiscing 
about like why were we even fighting and talking about their like life together and there, there's something actually like really interesting in there and that's like the best stuff in the movie uh well thank you guys very much that was a very free-ranging conversation about everything that's what movie conversations are about Bry, thank you for coming and joining us again. Thank you guys as always. We've been talking. I've been seeing Bry at the club. We've been seeing a lot of movies. And Bry is involved in a lot of exciting projects. And thank you for being here and for talking David Lynch. As always, I just want to thank Connor Lloyd Cruz, who edited this episode. He's our chief creative content officer. You can find out everything we do at secretmovieclub.com. Uh, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Uh, next week, we're going to do another Pieces of Cinema episode. This time, we're going to be talking about design, production design, costume design design, makeup, basically all the things that go into the physical look of the movie, which is hugely, hugely important. Although, as Connor pointed out, we are not going to talk about makeup effects like gore. That's really for the special effects episode. So stay tuned for that. And we'd love to have you this weekend. We're going to do Dedeskadan tonight. We're going to do La Dolce Vita and Eva Deloni tomorrow, two Fellini classics. And uh, we're going to announce our August and September, or begin to announce our August and September today when you listen to this at 1 p.m. All right, guys, have a great week. He is the Kwisatz Haderach. <laughs> oh, that little baby. And the pugs? Whose choice was that? That's not a book thing. Yeah, because Jean-Luc Picard has the dog where he's just going out to battle. In the battle scene. Like, What's he doing with that guy? dog? That's his battle pug. <laughs>